We've been studying Matthew's gospel. Major understatement, but Matthew is an important book in the Bible. They're all important books, of course, but there's a reason that this testimony, this eyewitness testimony, is placed at the beginning of the New Testament. It is a way that we are to frame our view of Jesus. What is he like? What has he done on our behalf? And what does it mean to follow him? What we're going to find now as we look at Matthew chapter 11 is a bit of a a zag. We've been zigging, 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 zigging. The mission of Jesus has been building and building and building. We have virgin birth. We have dedication. We have defeating of Satan in the wilderness. We have sky opening and a baptism. We have miracles. Now we have disciples being formed around, given the Spirit to go, and demons shudder and shake and run. Jesus has taught powerfully the Sermon on the Mount. He said, blessed, 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 blessed. There's been a pattern. A zig, a zig, a zig, a zig, a zig. And I hope that you see what I mean. Matthew 11, in some ways, is a zag. Maybe not what we expected. It's not only building faithfulness, but there's a real question at the heart of Matthew 11. So let's read 19 verses of Matthew 11. 19 verses together. I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll consider this text. This is the first verse, the 11th chapter of Matthew. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or should we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John... And if, are you, if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking. And they say, he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. And they say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. 
Let's pray together just for a moment. Father, I pray that our time together considering Matthew 11 would be profitable. These words are God-breathed, so we expect that it will be profitable. I ask you to send your Spirit who is present here. We're gathered in your presence. So Holy Spirit, you are here, but I pray, Spirit of God, take from Jesus and give to us. I desire to be helpful and clear. I pray that our collective understanding would help us to see. We ask that you would give us the good gift of being one of those, this metaphor of Jesus, that we would have ears and so hear. We ask these things not because we deserve it or merit these things, but because you are a good Father who loves your children. So make us into the image of your Son. We pray in his name. Amen. I'm so glad to be in a room full of spiritual people, Christians. It's comforting, you know, to be in such a confident room. Maybe I just help the whole room by asking a question like this. Those of you who have never once doubted, raise your hand. Those of you who always and completely and consistently know that God is and that He's for you, and you've never once stuttered in praying, never once had a question that goes unanswered, raise your hand. If you do raise your hand, of course, we could also say that you are of that unique group called liars. John the Baptist, of all people, who from Jesus' own words say is greater than any other born among women, doubts. Why would Matthew, who wants to convince the world concerning Jesus, and draw loyalty to him, why would he include a passage of doubt? Wouldn't God want to care for his reputation? Wouldn't he want to cross some of this stuff out, all this real human doubting stuff? The reality is is that he does not. It's here. Bare before us. And what we'll learn from John the Baptist is how to deal with doubt. The reality is is that everyone doubts. There may be a kind of no man's land between full faith and doubt. I think sometimes it takes a while to get between the two, but I can recall moments where faith sure seemed hard to find. I can recall praying fervently for health and good news in hospital rooms. 
And specifically in one time, having prayed for months, meeting a moment where almost mid-sentence I simply stopped praying. I remember being almost distracted by the questions that flooded to my mind and my heart. Like, are these words going anywhere? I've been praying about this for months. I've been praying about it now for hours. Do I have anything else to say? And it sure felt like I had passed from full faith somewhere into a no man's land. And over the next number of months, having dealt with suffering, feeling what I can only describe as the confusion and sometimes shame of doubt. I remember walking down the hall, working for the church, walking down the hall, turning the corner into my office. I see the word pastor there on the side of the door and getting a little nervous. Going in and sitting down and having the door shut and thinking, I'm supposed to be working for God. Is this legal? Do I need to resign now? Feeling the kind of confusion if someone came in to ask for prayer or to talk with me, maybe I should have a disclaimer, like a a form that they should sign that lists out at the bottom, just so you know, over the next number of moments, you'll be receiving spiritual counsel from a pastor who also has some doubts. So in case it doesn't work, just so you know, I may be acting illegally or something. The reality is is that everyone doubts. It does us no good to pretend that doubt is not palpable, real, consistent, sometimes invades when you least expect it, sometimes stays longer than it's been invited to stay. So I believe that Matthew includes John the Baptist doubting for our good. And I'm going to describe dealing with doubt from two perspectives. There'll be two points under the way that John's perspective, how does John the Baptist deal with doubt? And then one category or thought for how Jesus deals with doubt. So the first two things we're going to look at concerning the way that John deals with his doubt is we're going to note that his question, the first thing we should say is that it's an understandable question. What I want to do is to show that John the Baptist has been honest in an understandable way. First category is that there is an understandable question. Second thing is that John the Baptist gives us what I would consider a commendable course of action. A commendable path. A commendable course. That'll be from John the Baptist's perspective. What do you do with real doubts? But then we're going to look at the way that Jesus deals with doubt. And I think in a simple word I'd say graciously. There's a gracious response. So, we're going to look at an understanding or an understandable question from the John the Baptist, the commendable course that he gives us, and then finally, a gracious response from Jesus. So, what is the question from John the Baptist? And can we empathize? Well, it tells us at the beginning of this that Jesus has instructed his 12 disciples. We just want to note, John the Baptist is not one of them. They're out doing Jesus things with the power of the Spirit, John the Baptist is not. Well, where is John the Baptist, you might say? 
Well, verse 3 reminds us, or verse 2 reminds us, that he is in prison. Now, so far, Matthew has not given us details about why he's in prison, but I think it's key to understanding his understandable doubt. John the Baptist is in prison for doing righteous things, not unrighteous things. John the Baptist did not let the popularity of his baptizing ministry get to his head and siphon a little off the top. John the Baptist did not say, hey, in addition to peddling honey and locusts, I have a little drugs here or something. He didn't start a cabal. He didn't start an underground organization. John the Baptist is in prison for righteousness' sake. What we find out in Mark chapter 6 is that John the Baptist did what John the Baptist seemed to always do, and that is call people to repent, and sometimes he got specific. You know, he normally gives a call out and he says, repent, the kingdom of heaven is near. Well, this time with King Herod specifically, he got personal. He says to Herod, you cannot commit adultery, let alone a kind of incestuous sort of adultery. This is wrong. And in return, how was he repaid but to be thrown in prison? So John the Baptist who started out so well. He is the way that the Gospels begin. He's the forerunner. Jesus even commends him and says, yes, he's the messenger sent before your face. John the Baptist, who started out so well. John the Baptist, who was there present when Jesus came to offer himself for baptism, is the one who doubts. John the Baptist, who it says in John chapter 1, verse 29, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. You'd think that that John the Baptist, who started so well, would not have doubt. It's funny, the phrase here in John 1, that Jesus was coming toward him, that's the same wording that he uses when he says to his disciples, go ask him, is he the coming one? He knew he was the coming one. What's interesting is that Matthew has sort of foreshadowed perhaps the humanness of John the Baptist. Though he's used well in the history of God's redemptive plan, he still doesn't have the whole picture. Verse, verses 13 and 14 of Matthew chapter 3 show us that John the Baptist knew a lot. He was given the Holy Spirit from birth, birth, but he didn't know everything. It says in verse 13 of Matthew 3, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. In verse 14, John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. Do you come to me? Jesus has to correct him in that moment. And I believe that this is the first sign that helps us to understand the doubt of John the Baptist. John the Baptist knew his purpose and was given the Spirit to describe Jesus as the one who takes away the sin of the world. But he did not have full knowledge. He was not infallible. He was not omniscient. He's not sovereign. He could see who Jesus was. He knew the promise of the forgiveness of sins, but he didn't understand how it would all unfold. And I think what we find here is that John the Baptist then suffers from an understandable kind of doubt. Can you see him there? Already a little confused. He doesn't have the full picture. What is Jesus going to do? What does he have to do? How long will it take? For righteousness' sake, he gets thrown into prison. We are now 11 chapters into Matthew, and since that great moment when the heavens opened and the dove descended and a voice came from heaven, he's more or less been forgotten. Did you notice that? 
Do you notice how the ministry of Jesus just moves on? John the Baptist is sort of sidelined. He was front and center. Now he's sidelined. Matthew and Luke and Mark and all the rest, they're, be, they're being given this amazing power of the Spirit. They're sent out and commissioned. And where's John the Baptist? In prison. Those who rule are still evil. Those in power still resist. And you have to wonder how many days he sat there in silence thinking, is now the time? Should I ask the question? Should I press it? Should I not? And finally, this combination of factors, and I think we can look at a few combination of factors, led, led him to straight doubt. He sends word by his disciples to say, are you the one or should we look for another? Like a confused rider with an Uber driver. I've been standing here for a while. It looks like the car. I'm not really sure. Should I get in or not? So what I want to do is give what I believe are a kind of combination of factors that seem to lead to John's doubt. The first is this. What causes doubt in John is his inability to see the whole plan. He is given a purpose. He is given revelation from God, but not the whole picture, and it drives him crazy. Basically, all we could say is essentially this. John the Baptist was not sovereign. He's not calling all the shots, and he falls victim to a very normal and understandable human instinct, which is he wants to know why and when and how. He sees the way the world is going, and he essentially says something like this. Um, I wouldn't run things like this. That's not how I would do it. And it causes him to doubt. I think of these combination of factors as looking for points of weakness, perhaps. I don't know if you've ever gone tenting or camping in an, with an old tent, and you see a rainstorm coming on the horizon. Maybe one of the first things you do is you think to yourself, is this thing going to hold up? And you know where you should look if you're worried about the possibility of rain getting into your tent? You should look at the seams. Because the seams will be the place that water's going to come in. And if you're like my boys and I, one time when we went with an old tent, you will get utterly and completely soaked if you don't have the seams solid. And I think of these particular points as the places often where doubt can creep in. And the first one is the questions, Why? John the Baptist is in prison for righteousness' sake, and I bet he wonders, why? I did what was right. I know the story of the Old Testament. I know who Jesus was. I saw the heavens opened. Why is life going like this? And my conviction is that for most who desire to follow Jesus, most who have a sense of spirituality, that the place that doubt will be most potent for them are at the seams of their questions why. And I think these are understandable. Because if we're honest, we all have questions that are unanswered. We all cannot see. We all have moments where our complaint to God would go something like this. How you're doing things makes no sense to me. We wonder why. 
Loved ones are taken from us. We wonder why disease comes. We wonder why evil rules and reigns, it seems. We wonder why we're not given what we believe we deserve. We wonder why suffering remains in the world. We wonder why sometimes when we pray, it seems like God is absent. The reality is is that every person, because they are not sovereign, harbors within them questions why. And my suggestion to you is that you live honestly with these questions. Because they will be the place where faith begins to intermingle with understandable doubts. Maybe I'll just address it this way. God, though He loves us and has made a way to be united with His people forever, has not given us God-like knowledge. We simply do not know why in this world at the present time, in God's sovereignty and in His plan, He allows suffering and evil to intermingle with goodness and righteousness and hope and faith. And so John wonders why. Why is Herod in power and not Jesus? Because he's here. Why do I have chains on for doing the right thing when so many other people are doing the wrong thing? So the first combination of factors that creates understandable doubts is an inability to see the whole plan and you wonder why the world is going the way the world is going. But if that does not get you, then another seam of potential doubt is personal suffering. And John the Baptist is also encountering personal suffering. For many people, it is easy to point someone to faith as long as they're the one that's doing the suffering. You may have questions about the world, but it's easily chalked up to, well, God is God and we aren't, until the suffering comes home. And then you might be tempted to say something like this, I've prayed, I've given, I've gone to church, I've done all the right things, why am I not flourishing the way that I think that I should be? Perhaps the personal suffering is something as simple as this. Why aren't my questions answered? Because I have questions. And personal suffering and difficulty often becomes the place where we are forced to meet real doubts. And John the Baptist is suffering. He's facing the threat of death. He will be put to death. His head brought on a platter. And finally, another factor, and perhaps this one is the most potent. You take the questions that you have and aren't able to answer about the way the world is working. You take the suffering that you are personally dealing with. And then you add in the great combustible waiting. It's as though the questions we have not being omniscient about the world and our own personal suffering are a batch full of Mentos. And then all you have to do is add a little bit of the Diet Coke of waiting. And eventually the explosions begin. Explosions of doubt or anger or difficulty. 
John the Baptist, who knows how long exactly he had to wait, but day after day goes by and he sees no change. And maybe we could just say this, isn't it understandable and have you not experienced the reality that waiting is the worst? Perhaps you could endure almost anything if you just know how long. I can plank. You ever planked? I can plank for seconds, honestly. Just for seconds I can plank. But ask a person to go into an infinite plank and things change. You might hear them screaming, how long is this going to go? Did the timer go off? Has it been a minute yet? It's one thing to not see the whole plan because God is sovereign and you are not. It's one thing to suffer when you're not sure why. It's another thing to hold those two things in tension for a while and to simply wait. And for many people, eventually, they find themselves like a poor old tent that has not been sealed, drenched in doubts. And I say that this is an understandable question because woe to him who judges John the Baptist in a moment of doubt. There's an NBA meme in a debate about LeBron James and the best of all time, and there's a certain set of people, and I myself would probably be included, a certain set of people who hold Michael Jordan probably still the best, and the little meme goes something like this, that anytime you want to critique LeBron, you just say something like, Michael Jordan would never lose in the finals, or Michael Jordan would never. And what I would say is, rather than treating John the Baptist like that, we should not be the kind of Christians who read along the march, all the zigs of Jesus growing his kingdom, and come to chapter 11 and say, oh, how disloyal. A good Christian would never. I would never. The reality is, is that we would ever And worse than that, when we lie to one another or to ourselves that doubt is not a normal part of the spiritual experience, it can cause a kind of panicked overreaction that says, if I have real doubts, it must mean that I'm completely lost. The question becomes, what if you find yourself in a place like that? What if you see the way the world's going and you just don't get it? What if personal suffering has led you to ask the questions about your own path in life? What if the waiting is just finally too much? Well, John the Baptist gives a commendable course. And I want to say this clearly and easily and simply so as not to overcomplicate it. Where should one take one's doubts? Straight to Jesus. The commendable example to follow here is to avoid the temptation. You know what happens a lot of times to churchy people, to our own souls, when we have doubts? We get fearful and we believe that our doubts make us unqualified to come into the presence of Jesus. We end up turning further from Him because we imagine a kind of Jesus that is a narcissistic, lording it over sort of boss who would be upset with disloyal weakness. 
But John the Baptist does no such thing. When finally granted the courage to admit his weakness, his whys, his doubts, he brings the question straight to Jesus. He just asks. Many times, in the uncomfortable moments of doubt, we run the opposite direction. I think there are many people who have rested or settled in doubts. Many people who in the uncomfortable moments of doubting have said, I'm going to seek as much reinforcement as possible. So you find those who might say what you want to hear. Again, this is understandable because doubts are real. But I wonder how many of us have learned to doubt our doubts. You notice what John the Baptist does not say? He does not accuse. He doesn't say to his disciples, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go in there, bring a spear if you have to, probably some bow and arrow. I want you to go in there and I want you to threaten him and say, I gave my whole life for you. Don't you remember? I was there when the sky opened. Why are you letting me suffer? Do you not care? If you're the savior of the world, I can imagine a better one, you know, one who would maybe cut off the head of this evil king and not me. What John the Baptist does is not go with straight accusation, but he comes to Jesus with honesty and he doubts his doubt. He said, so I'm thinking this, is this true? He just asks unashamedly. And what I wonder is, do we have a culture that follows this course? Maybe I'll ask it personally first. Are you in the habit of bringing your doubts to God? Do you subconsciously or perhaps even consciously try to avoid every one of the real deep questions of your soul because you need to sound like a person who has faith when you pray? When is the last time you just went for a walk by yourself and you really brought out all of the actual anger you have? Do you think God could handle it if you just kicked rocks a while? Have you brought the honest questions that your soul is dealing with to the only one who can answer? And many times we simply do not. We don't ask. And at the end of the day, what I would say is at that moment you're trusting yourself, never doubting your doubts, saying, maybe back then I was confused, now I'm perfectly not. That's the funny settledness of doubt. Now I'm perfectly not, though. So you trust yourself or you trust the voices of others who would commend. Perhaps even on the other way, I'm not even saying this. Don't even take just the church's word for it, right? I hope that I can give wise counsel, but if someone comes to me with questions, I still want to give them the disclaimer just so you know, I don't know. I want to listen, and I'm probably going to listen to difficulties in wise, and I certainly won't have answers to the wise. I'll probably listen and say something like this. I hear you. I understand. I understand. I think that too sometimes. I understand. I understand. I don't know. And then the only good wisdom I could say is to say something like this. Can we, let's just take it to Jesus together. So here's a question for you. Have you articulated the whys, the doubts that you're actually dealing with? Have you brought them to Him? And maybe I might just say one other point in this. 
as courageous and as difficult as it is to bring yourself in fullness like this, maybe I would just say my longing, my desire would be that we're a church where this is possible as well. Maybe you've been in a Bible study or a community group before, and someone says, how are you doing? What's been going on? And what comes out of your mouth is something like this, oh, you know, good, a little tired, a little busy. That's what's vocalized. But what your heart is screaming is something like this. Um, kind of angry at God, not sure if he's there. Uh, really impatient, suffering, sad. But you know, or perhaps you are fearful, that if you said that, if you're in the room with all the other spiritual people, if someone asked you, how are you doing? And you said, you know what? Honestly, I'm disillusioned. I don't know what to do. I'm doubting. I'm drenched. The rain has come. The storm is here. I'm not safe in the tent. Everything's ruined. And maybe you've been in a place where you said something like that and you're in the group and then everyone gasped collectively. This is not the program. We don't know how to respond, right? You've broken the code somehow and so everyone just moves on. Let's not be a place like that. If the commendable course is to bring our doubts, our real, live questions to Jesus, then we ought to be a place where the church of Jesus expects this kind of thing. And we help one another bring our questions to Him. So when someone says, I'm doubting, don't say, oh, Lance Olam would never. And if you still are not convinced that John's example here in bringing this bare question, this disloyal, can't believe it's in the Bible question, if you still are not convinced that this is God's commended course, His recommended path, have you ever even read the Psalms? David's on the run. He's in the cave. He can hear the army coming. He hasn't eaten for days. And what does he do? Well, he stuffs down all of his doubts. He never once questions God. No, actually, wait, never mind. How many could we read? He takes out his instrument or he starts writing down and he's got like emo songs. How long, oh God, I'm a worm right now. They're going to break me in half and you don't care. That's how he writes his songs. So God smites him down right then, doesn't he? Doesn't God say, you disloyal Supposed to be man after my own heart. How dare you question? No, you know what God does? He says, you know what? This is good. This will be helpful to people. Why don't you write that down? I'm going to preserve it forever. And people in churches are going to sing about it to a nice little melody. Because this is how you deal with your doubts. So maybe I would say this. Don't doubt Jesus without giving him the privilege of carrying your doubts with you. Don't withhold them from him, but go to him. And I don't even have all the time to describe how gracious Jesus is. So that's from John's perspective. He's got this very volatile concoction, right, of the situation in the world, his own personal suffering, and his patient waiting. He gives us the path. He says, all right, just go ask him. 
Just bring it to him. And then the confidence we have is because Jesus responds so graciously. He answers first with the gospel. He tells them, go and tell them what you hear and see. And now this sounds poetic. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed. He goes down. He uses the good news as a verb. He says the poor are gospelized. Tell them that's what's happening. But there's so much more that's going on behind the scenes here. Jesus, in one of his shortest sermons ever, I believe what he's doing is He's telling John the Baptist to have confidence. He's saying, John the Baptist, I know you don't fully understand. I know you're personally suffering. I know you have to wait, but I want you to know I am who I say I am. What he quotes back to those disciples is essentially Isaiah 61. And Luke chapter 4 records this sermon that Jesus gives. It's one of his best. It tells us starting in verse 16 that he, Jesus, came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up. He goes back to his hometown, his stomping ground. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. So he grabs the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, which was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and he found a place where it was written. And this is that place, Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He pulls a prophetic Messiah Christ-like passage. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, to gospelize the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus has just applied Isaiah 61. He's read it out, and he's beginning to apply it to himself. And then so that we know he's not mistaken, or that we're not reading into it the wrong thing, it says in verse 20, he rolled up the scroll, he gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. He began to say to them, this is what's recorded, this is what Luke records as the entirety of his message. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. He essentially says to them, remember who I am. I'm describing to you that all of the good promises of God, that eventually the Lord's favor would be declared, yes, in a world that is not yet fully made new. Yes, to people who are personally suffering. And yes, Sometime in a hopeful future, this has been fulfilled in me. And he gives this passage to remind John the Baptist of who he is. Jesus is able. He is working out in real time the salvation that is promised from history past. So Jesus, in response to real doubt, does a gracious thing. He reveals himself. What a promise. Why should I tell you, I'm supposed to be the expert, why should I tell you if you come to me with doubts, why should I tell you, go get by yourself and bring your doubts to Jesus? Why? Because Jesus is gracious enough that those who come with their questions and bring them honestly before him, Jesus is in the business of revealing himself. He shows you who he is. He reminds you of his promises. He gives hope to the poor. He gives sight to the blind. He finds the lost. He's able to set free the captive. And where everything seems to be negative, he can announce favor. Jesus reminds John the Baptist who he is. And then more than that, look how gracious Jesus is. 
You know what he does for the rest of this section? We're not sure if the disciples that are John the Baptist are still there. It says as they were leaving, so they probably missed some of it. You know what Jesus does to one who questions him? He showers affection and praise and love upon him. Imagine an insecure, power-hungry, narcissistic kind of leader. Someone comes and publicly accuses him of not being who he said he was. And then the disciples leave and how tempting it would be to Jesus turn and say, can you believe this guy? The audacity. Let me tell you, John the Baptist would be nothing if it wasn't for me. You think his ministry would have kept going if the sky hadn't opened? How dare he? But you know what Jesus does with those who doubt? He shows them greater mercy, deeper grace. He reminds John the Baptist who he is. He says, you know, here's the crazy part. John the Baptist was a true prophet. In fact, more than a prophet. He spoke spoke boldly and he is the spirit of Elijah himself. He quotes Malachi 3. He says, John the Baptist was actually the fulfillment of Malachi. More than that, he says, of those born of women, no one greater than John the Baptist. This guy's amazing. And he uses him as an example to say, those who are in the kingdom are even greater than he. When you bring your doubts to Jesus, you need not worry that he will quench a smoldering wick. A bruised reed he will not break. I am confident to tell you to bring your doubts to him because he is unbelievably kind, more than you deserve. He'll simply gently remind you. He'll say, remember? Remember how I forgave you? Remember how I met you? Remember the moments of past doubt that are set up now like monuments as I've kept you in my hand? Isn't it a miracle that we're here, all us doubters, all us sufferers, all of us fallible? We look back and we say, Jesus met us even in the worst moments of our doubt. Monuments set up to his faithfulness. The first seed of faith that gives rise to all other fruit is this. I believe that what I can do with this Jesus is bring my doubts to him. So I want to encourage you. Have you admitted your questions? Do you have a place where you pray them? Maybe if you have a little place to take notes, even on a day like this, you'd make yourself a little note and you'd say, I need to be more honest about this. I want to run to the Lord with this. There's been times, and that's totally fine, I have to put it in detail, some people are better at that than others. There's been times when I've been writing down things I wanted to pray about, and I end up just putting like an initial or so. Because I know myself and others, and I can imagine someone finding this, and you know what I mean, I'm still insecure like that. So I'm not saying you even have to write it out like that, but put a note down and say, here's the thing, I don't want to suffer silently or pretend I don't have doubts anymore. I want to be met by and experience the graciousness of Jesus. So I'm going to bring it all to Him. Can I encourage you to stop pretending that it's more spiritual to lie? It's not more spiritual to say that somehow you understand everything 
It's not more spiritual to say, boy, I have questions, or I don't have any questions. It's actually a holy thing to wrestle with God. And so I don't know what it means for you to take this little moment to commit. Maybe I would say this, ask God for the courage to be an honest doubter, not a hiding one, and to go to Him. Let me pray that for you and for me. Let's pray.